0: The Bell Jar is the only novel Sylvia Plath ever wrote. This, of course, makes its resonance and relevance all the more impressive. Even nearly six decades after being published, it holds a poignancy and intensity few are able to match even with a dozen novels, let alone one. Her poems had been published for years in journals and magazines, but upon the release of The Bell Jar, Sylvia Plath was not a household name. Even if she had been a household name, it perhaps still might not have helped her immediate recognition as a novelist, considering she used a pseudonym in the first pressings of the novel. Her real name would not appear on the cover until three years after the first pressing. As a member of the confessional poet movement, her writing would go on to be scrutinized and analyzed, often leading to debates about just how autobiographical her works were or were not, Furthermore, even if it mattered at all, she's been referred to as the single greatest female poet of the 21st century, and the bell jar has appeared on numerous lists of the best novels of all time. It might not have made the big splash she had hoped for, or as fast as she needed it to, but it would bloom into something far beyond anything she could have envisioned, which makes the fact that she missed out on her own success all the more tragic. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, poets, and the troubled. I am your host, Jason Nemo Hardin, and today we are exploring the great Sylvia Plath and her novel, The Bell Jar. The Bell Jar was first published in 1963. Here is a short synopsis. I was supposed to be having the time of my life. When Esther Greenwood wins an internship with the New York Fashion Magazine in 1953, she is elated, believing she will finally realize her dream to become a writer. But in between the cocktail parties and piles of manuscripts, Esther's life begins to slide out of control. She finds herself spiraling into depression and eventually a suicide attempt as she grapples with difficult relationships and a society which refuses to take women's aspirations seriously. Quote, Remember, remember, this is now and now and now. Live it. Feel it. Cling to it." End quote. Born on October 27, 1932, in Boston, Massachusetts, Sylvia Plath was the first child of Aurelia Schober Plath and Otto Plath. Her mother was the breadwinner of the family, which was unusual for the time period. She was always paying for piano and dance lessons for her daughter. Despite her obvious talent in various areas, it was clear that Sylvia was particularly talented within the realm of writing from an early age. Unfortunately, that was something her father would miss out on after an infection turned to gangrene and he died a week and a half after Sylvia's eighth birthday. That same year, she had her first poem published in the children's section of the Boston Traveler newspaper. Afterwards, she would have multiple poems published in various regional magazines and newspapers. And despite her early accomplishments, Sylvia would struggle with the thought that she was less than many of her peers. Without a father, and regardless that her mother did her best, they were closer to poverty than middle class, which perhaps led to an inferiority complex in her youth. Nevertheless, She saw a way out with writing and continued to pursue her passion with all her might and vigor. After the death of her husband, Otto Plath, Aurelia moved her children as well as her parents to a house in Wellesley, Massachusetts. This is where, at age eleven, Sylvia would begin to keep a journal, a tradition she would follow for most of her life. In 1950, at age eighteen. She had already written over 50 short stories, many of which had been published in various magazines well before she was accepted into Smith College, a private liberal arts college for women in Massachusetts. This was a big deal at the time, given that women did not have as many colleges to choose from as men did, and she would excel there. It was also at Smith that she showed a friend her collection of rejection slips which she had received through her writing career thus far telling her friend that those slips proved indeed that she was a writer. Then again, while at Smith, during her third year, she was awarded the coveted position as guest editor at Mademoiselle magazine. This meant that she would spend a month in luxurious Manhattan, New York. Fortunate or unfortunate, it would not be anything close to what she had hoped it would be. Quote, Perhaps someday I'll crawl back home, beaten, defeated, but not as long as I can make stories out of my heartbreak, beauty out of sorrow. End quote. The novel that would be would deal with what women were expected to be in the early 1950s. What ambitions they were supposed to have and pursue would be inspired and shaped by occurrences that took place in Manhattan some eight years before the first word of the novel was written. Being highly autobiographical, it reflected Sylvia's own confusion and disappointment during her time in the Big Apple, but it also reflected the strong depression that was taking hold at the time it was written. The book starts off with the protagonist having many opportunities and possibilities in her life, and as the book progresses, these possibilities disappear, leaving little options by the end of it, just like it felt to Plath, herself. Being separated from the time frame in which the occurrences of the novel affected her directly, she was able to more clearly recognize the irony and shallowness of what she went through eight years earlier. This, along with choosing a different protagonist and name, separating the experiences further, allowed her to use a different perspective to tell her story, and thus allowed her in most likelihood to be more honest in her storytelling. The America that shaped her in those very important formative years was one that reflected the idea of optimism and being on the rise. It was post-war and a new morning in America, full of positivity and life. However, beneath that thin veil of optimism, there was the fear of Communism and an expectation to conform to the conservative norm. She did not like these limitations, and wrote that she wished she had been born a male. As a woman, she felt she could merely decide on which mate to accept, Beyond that, she felt there was little to say in regards to anything in her own life. Men were given the privilege to work and live and at the same time keep a family, while women were expected to be mothers and housewives. And that was it. She fantasized about being a man, about visiting bars and brothels and having the freedom to do such things without being looked at as if she was doing something wrong. Men could experiment and have girlfriends, and fool around, and then decide what they wanted to do. This was a freedom she felt entitled to, yet a freedom not available to her. It was the double standard she was deeply upset about. Not that men could do all these things, but rather that she wasn't allowed to by the moral standards of the time. Despite feeling so trapped within her own time, she nevertheless wanted to live life explore journalism and writing, and become a poet. This made her different than the rest of her peers, which made her stand out, for better or worse. Along with the letter awarding her the position at Mademoiselle Magazine, She received another letter explaining all the dresses she would need to bring for the different activities and events during her stay in New York. It also included which areas of Manhattan were taboo and therefore not permitted to explore, including Greenwich Village, where they had so-called jazz joints. It was all mapped out for her and limited her freedom in the great city of opportunity even before she arrived. Upon arriving in Manhattan, the one element that disappointed her deeply was when she realized that she wasn't going to be introduced to respected writers such as Dylan Thomas or Tennessee Williams. Welsh poet Dylan Thomas was high on the list of her favorite writers, and it is stated that she loved his writing more than life itself. What this realization established was the fact that she was expected to remain within the realm of beauty and fashion writing, basically what was referred to as female writing. After the disappointment of being snubbed from meeting Thomas, she hung around the White Horse Tavern and the Chelsea Hotel for two days in hopes of meeting the poet. Unfortunately, it was not to be and the depressive spiral that had already begun to get a solid grip on her accelerated. After the long journey, the exhaustion and fatigue hit home. She was back where she'd begun, and felt disappointed by something that had given her so little. She felt no more wise, or better, or knowledgeable. Just exhausted. This exhaustion cultivated in her being unable to write which would unfortunately be followed by her first attempt at suicide. According to sources, she cut her legs, but would later state that it was to see if she dared to cut herself more than it was a suicide attempt. After the incident, the physician who treated her quickly jumped to the conclusion that she was depressed and needed to be treated with electroshock therapy. A refusal to attend the Harvard Writing Seminar did not help her mental state either, and she soon afterwards agreed to the treatment. Her first electroshock therapy treatment would turn out very ugly. Given no sedatives beforehand, she endured the contracting and tightening of her muscles to such an extent that her bones nearly broke. After the treatment, she wondered what she had done to deserve it because it felt like a punishment for being depressed. Following the horrible experience, she decided she did not want to be a burden on her mother anymore. Perhaps this was because her mother had spent such a large sum of money on the treatment. Soon thereafter, she knew it was merely a matter of time before she would commit suicide, but she would make sure not to be a burden. On August 24, 1953, Sylvia wrote a note stating that she was going for a walk. However, she took a bottle of her mother's sleeping pills, containing approximately 40 or 50 pills. She then went into a crawl space in the cellar where she consumed many of the pills. Believing that she had gone for a walk and suspected to have disappeared on that walk, a search was initiated. Close to 200 newspaper articles were written about the search, where she was referred to as the Smith College Girl, but the search grew ever more fruitless. After three days, her brother heard soft moans stemming from the cellar, and they found Sylvia in the crawlspace. She was found in time and survived. She recovered and would go on to graduate in 1955. However, the deep, horrible extents of her depression weren't forgotten, and she knew. She would later be honest about that fact in her writing, stating that if the depression returned with such severity again, she would surely not survive it. Fortunately, better days were on the horizon, and Sylvia would meet poet Ted Hughes a year later on February 25th, 1956. By June 16th, They were married in London, and Ted Hughes would soon gain recognition as a poet, which would open doors for Sylvia as well. In June 1957, they would move to the U.S. Back in the United States, she taught at her alma mater for a while, but found it difficult to both teach and have enough time and energy to write. Eventually, they made the move to Boston, where she worked as a receptionist in the psychiatric unit of the Massachusetts General Hospital. In the evenings, she would attend the creative writing seminars of Robert Lowell. The couple then spent some time traveling across Canada and the United States, all while writing poems before they moved back to London in December of 1959, where they became pregnant with child. On April 1, 1960, their daughter Frieda was born, and in October of the same year, Plath published her first collection of poetry, The Colossus. The collection was well received and her poetry was praised. It seemed as though she had the life she did not believe was possible growing up. She was a writer, a wife, and a mother. It seemed to be everything she had dreamed about. Nevertheless, she felt a need to revisit her past. She felt a need to go through the experiences which had taken place during that summer in Manhattan. Soon afterwards, she was working on what would become her only novel. Quote, and by the way, everything in life is writable about if you have the outgoing guts to do it and the imagination to improvise. The worst enemy to creativity is self-doubt. End quote. According to her husband, Sylvia began writing the novel in 1961, following the publishing of The Colossus under the sponsorship of the Eugene F. Saxton Fellowship, affiliated with publisher Harper and Rowe. While working on the novel, her second pregnancy would unfortunately end in miscarriage. In a letter to her therapist, she wrote that her husband had beat her two days prior to the miscarriage. This incredibly unfortunate incident naturally had a profound effect leading her to write several poems, including Parliament Hill Fields, addressing the loss of her second child. To make matters worse, her sponsorship and publisher withdrew their support after reading an early draft of the novel, calling it disappointing, juvenile, and overwrought. An uncorrected proof copy of the novel also revealed that the name of the protagonist, Who would become Esther Greenwood in the published edition was at one point called Victoria Lucas, just like the pseudonym Plath had used for initial publications. Then, in January 1962, Plath gave birth to a baby boy named Nicholas, but sadly, her life was in a downward spiral that she would not be able to curve by that point. Depression was taking over more and more and the depressive episodes were getting more severe. In June of that same year, Plath was involved in a car accident that she would later describe as one of her many suicide attempts. A month later in July, she would discover that her husband was having an affair, bringing more dire stress into an already stressful and depressive existence. By September, she was a divorcee. Despite events leading to her ever-deepening depression, in a sudden spurt of creativity beginning in October of 1962, she would write most of the poems which are now her legacy. She would write at least 26 of the poems that were collected posthumously in Ariel during the final months of her life. On another bright note, she did find publishing for the novel and after playing with titles, which included... Diary of a Suicide, and The Girl in the Mirror, she finally landed on The Bell Jar. As mentioned earlier, The Bell Jar was published in January 1963, and done so under the pseudonym Victoria Lucas, because she didn't want her mother to read the novel the names of people and places were also altered and or changed to protect them as well as herself. Tragically, there would only be a short time between the publication of the novel and her death, resulting in only a few readings and reviews of the novel. Being published under a pseudonym might have also made the comparison between her previous work and the book difficult to make. The reviews that did appear were mostly positive, but they weren't what she had hoped for. With the circumstances surrounding the divorce, among other things, she hoped that the bell jar would be her great breakout success and the first step into her full independence. Sadly, it didn't seem to be in the cards for her, or at least not quick enough as the depression continued to tighten its grip. In the same month her book was released, Sylvia spoke to her close friend and general practitioner, John Horder, who lived near her. At the time, she was living alone with her two small children in a now-famous flat in London. After expressing worries about the state of her dire depressive episodes, she was prescribed an antidepressant. Horder knew that she was at risk of suicide and would therefore make daily visits to check up on the children as well as tried to convince her to admit herself for treatment in the hospital. Unable to convince her, he arranged for a live-in nurse. Tragically, on the 11th day of February, 1963, Sylvia Plath was found dead with her head in the oven. She had sealed the room where her children were sleeping with tape, towels, and cloth, and had left glasses of milk and bread for them. She was 30 years old. Since her death, the bell jar has been held and praised. The novel's honesty and poignancy continues to connect with many to this day. It has stood the test of time and will surely continue to do so. Her daughter, Frida Hughes, would go on to become a writer and artist in her own right. Her son, Nicholas, on the other hand, would unfortunately be plagued by depression and chose to leave this plane. On March 16, 2009. Rounding up on a bright note in 2019 the BBC News listed the bell jar on its list of the 100 most inspiring novels further solidifying its relevance and importance. As always here's one last quote from the master poet. I write only because there's a voice within me that won't be stale." End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Lemoore Hardin. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash house of words and to those of you who have been listening and supporting us throughout our short journey we sincerely thank you and appreciate you very much until next time keep turning those pages House of Words is written and produced by Cristo M. Sanchez, narrated and written by me, Jason Nemo Harden, and music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Crystal M. Sanchez and Jason Nemo Harden.